If you were at the chapel on Sunday for worship, the pastor was talking about being approved by God, being found to be approved by God, and he talked about this interview that was done with Billy Graham just a short time before he passed away. And if you don't know who Billy Graham is, he was probably one of the most successful evangelists of our time. He was a preacher, traveled across the country, and converted maybe hundreds of thousands of people in America with his evangelistic crusades. And he was being interviewed by Diane Sawyer, and she asked him, what do you want to hear when you get to heaven? And he quoted the line from a parable in the New Testament where a master says to a servant, well done, good and faithful servant. And he said, that's what I want to hear from Jesus. And she asked him, do you think you will hear that from him? And he said, I hope so. And I think that that brings up a really interesting thing that we feel, which is, how can I be confident in what God thinks of me? How can I know what God thinks of me? I hope he thinks of me a certain way, but how do I know for sure? And I want you to take a second right now to, once you finish the note that you're writing, to put down your pens and close your eyes and I want you to imagine that the door in the chapel opened and Jesus walked in. That Jesus appeared in the flesh and he came down the center aisle and he stopped right in front of you. And if you were to open your eyes, what would Jesus' face be when he looked at you? Is he disappointed? angry? Is he proud? Is it blank? Is there nothing? So I want you to just think for a moment, what, what is Jesus' face towards you if you were to walk in here right now? So you can open your eyes. And I think that we tend to ask the question a lot when we're interacting with people, what do you think about God? Or who do you think God is? Or what do you think he's like? And there's a quote from a theologian who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is A.W. Tozer. C.S. Lewis wrote actually a response to this quote and said, um, you might need to keep my slides, Andrews. Oh, there we go. This is Lewis. He says, by God himself, it is not. So he's referring to the previous quote, that what we think about God is the most important. This is what Lewis says, how God thinks of us is not only more important but infinitely more important. And so that is the question I'm trying to answer in this talk, is what does God think of you? Not the person sitting next to you, not your roommate, not the room leader on your team, not the disciple in your room, but you. What does God think of you? If he were to walk in the room right now, what does he think about you? And I think that this is probably the most important question in the world. And this question is what we call the doctrine of justification. This is what the doctrine of justification is trying to answer. And there's a theologian named Martin Luther. He's basically sparked the Reformation. And he said that the article of justification is the thing on which the church stands or falls. So this is really important. If you get this right, you're golden. But if you get it wrong, you've missed the whole message of Christianity. And so feel a little bit scared to give this talk because the doctrine of justification is, is the central thing on which the church stands and falls. So here's the definition of justification. It's kind of wordy. A legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and counts the sinner as righteous in his sight. So just in case you missed it, the definition of justification is that you are pardoned of all your sin. All of it, you're pardoned. And not only are you pardoned of all your sins, but you are accepted and counted as righteous, which is incredible. But I think for most of us in this room, this doesn't feel true. 
if you've grown up in the church, a lot of you go to Northwestern, a lot of you go to Bethel, most of you, if you've grown up in the church, have probably heard in some form this definition of justification. In fact, if probably if I were to poll everyone in this room, my guess is probably 85% of you would be able to say something really close to this. And yet, I would also bet that most of you in the room feel like God is probably disappointed in you if you were to come in the room right now. And so there's this disconnect because we know in our heads what justification is, but for some reason, we don't actually feel it. And this really hit home for me last week in Zach's talk when he was describing saying goodnight to his boys. And I don't know if you remember this, but uh, whenever Zach talks about his boys, he tears up. And he was describing his, his rhythm and routine of putting his boys to bed. And he tucks them in and says over and over to them, I love that you do this. I love that you do this. And he speaks his love over them in really tender and specific ways. And I, I felt this, and I wonder if anyone else felt this. I felt uncomfortable with even daring to think that that's how God would think about me. And I almost wanted Zach to stop because it felt, it felt too good. <laughs> it felt too tender for that to ever be how God would feel about me. And I wonder if, if there are other of you in this room who also feel that way about God, that he loves you in kind of this theological, heady, distant way. But when it comes to a really specific, personal, tender love, you don't feel it. I think that the reason why we don't fully grasp what justification feels like is because I don't think that we understand the heart of God. Deeply, deeply, deeply embedded in us is the belief that we can't trust God's love and we must somehow earn it. And that's how, when you look back at the fall, that's how Satan got Adam and Eve, is he convinced them, you can't trust God. There's another way for you to get life and it's not through what God says. And, and that is in your DNA. That's in my DNA. It is embedded in our hearts to not trust God's love and to think we must somehow earn it. And I think some of us in this room see our sin as disqualifying us from being saved. And I would call that shame. So there are some of us in this room who feel intense shame over the things that we've done, over the things that have been done to us. And we feel like those things disqualify us from our Father's love. And some of us in this room see our righteousness as qualifying us for his love, and that's pride. And I want you to go, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke 15. I don't have a slide for this because I want you to read along with me in the Word. There's a story that Jesus tells. It's called the story of the prodigal son, and he unpacks this. But there's kind of two wrong ways we tend to think about God's love. So this is Luke 15, and it starts in verse 11. So I'm just going to read through this parable. It's a story, so follow along with me. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And sometimes these sons have been contrasted to each other, like they're, they're opposites from each other. One son is kind of the rebellious son, and he represents like everyone who lived like a really rebellious life. And the older son represents like the good Christian boy. But I think that these sons actually represent the same thing. I think both sons represent two sons that did not understand the love that their father had for them. They both missed the main point of this story. The main point of the story is the heart of their father. And so I want to spend my talk unpacking what is the heart of our father revealed to us in justification. And I have three points that I want to walk through. And I want to make the case that God is satisfied, God is generous, and God is happy. So for my first point, that God is satisfied, that, that kind of begs the question, what like, what was he not satisfied with before? So the word justification, I don't know if you got this, it's right there in the definition, but it's, it's a legal term. It, it's supposed to draw up this image of being in a courtroom. So I asked you before this to imagine that Jesus were to walk into this room, but now I want you to imagine that you're seated in a courtroom. You are the accused, you're, you're the defendant, and you're sitting before the judge's bench. And this is, the, this is the picture that the Bible paints when we're talking about justification. God is sitting in the judge's seat, and he's trying to determine if you have lived, lived up to the standard of holiness that he's required. If you read the Bible passage for this morning, Peter quotes Leviticus and the command that God gives to people where he says, you be holy as I am holy. And as God reviews the details of your case, as he replays all the scenes of your life, as he pulls up transcripts of everything that you've said, it becomes abundantly clear that you have not lived up to the standard of perfection. In fact, you haven't even come close. Not only have you not come close, you've actually done things that have directly opposed and rebelled against his perfection. And as the prosecutor is making his case against you, as he's reviewing transcript after transcript of the secret things that you've thought and the things you've done that no one knows about, the entire courtroom turns to you with horror because your darkest secrets and your deepest thoughts are being revealed to the world. And it's clear to everyone, yourself included, that you're guilty. And I hate to be <laughs> a Debbie Downer and cast a shadow on tonight, but this is the picture that the Bible paints. Justification is not like you were sitting on the side of the road and God took pity on you and gave you a free ride home. Justification is that you are a criminal who has been found guilty and you need to be punished. That's how the Bible talks about your sin. And this is a big problem. How can guilty sinners be made right with God. The way that the Bible talks about sin is that it's not just an accident. It's not just a misfortune. It's not just a, a sickness. It's a crime. And we are very, very guilty because we have not only sinned against each other, but we've sinned against God. And we know that God is our Father. I just read a parable about a father I've already kind of hinted that that's where I'm going with this. But the Bible also talks about God being a judge. And God's very nature demands that he upholds the law. And yet, his nature as our father calls him to love us. So it creates this question, how can love and law be reconciled? 
This is a passage from Colossians 2. This is what it says. And you who were dead in your trespasses, so there's that legal terminology, and the uncircumcisions of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is what I talked about really briefly that very first night that you were on project, that there is a way, God has made a way for the law and love to be reconciled, and he's done it by nailing your record of debt onto his son on the cross. That's the way that God preserved this. God didn't sweep your sin under a rug. God didn't look at your record of debt and say, hmm, this isn't a big deal. God looked at your record of debt and said, this is so bad, this is so bad, that I myself am going to have to die for this. That's how bad it is. So he upheld the law, but he also said, I love you so much that even though I don't owe it to you, even though I would be just fine if you die, I am going to die for your sins myself. So he upholds love. This is a quote from Horatius Bonar. He wrote a book called The Everlasting Righteousness. There's a couple copies floating around on Project. So if this talk just what's your appetite, I would encourage you to read this book. But this is what he says. There has been no compromise. Law and love have both had their full scope, one in all its severity, the other in all his, its tenderness. And this is the mind-blowing thing about justification, is that the severity of the law, instead of being taken out on us, was completely taken out on Jesus. Like, just, just think about that for a second. <laughs> the punishment for everything that you've done you will never experience even an ounce of that punishment because Jesus bore it all for you. And the tenderness and the love that the Father has that should have really only been given to Jesus has been given to you. That, <laughs> that is mind-boggling. The wrath of God has forever been satisfied because of the sacrifice of Christ. God, the judge, is satisfied because Jesus stepped forward in the courtroom and bore the punishment that your sins earned. And the crazy thing is that he did this willingly. Your sin didn't put Jesus on the cross. He put himself on the cross. And all that's left for you to do in this whole <laughs> courtroom situation, all that's left is for you to receive it. Um, if you want to go to the next slide, Andrew. This is another quote from my boy Horatius. There's going to be a lot of quotes from him, so just get ready. This is what he says. The consent of parties to the acceptance of this basis is required in court. So basically, if you're in a courtroom, everyone has to agree, okay, we're gonna let this person go. The law consents. The lawgiver consents. Father, son, and spirit consent. And man, the chief party interested, is asked for his consent. If he consents, the whole matter is settled. The verdict is issued in his favor, and henceforth he can triumph and say, it is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? So just imagine you are in a courtroom, and not only is God willing to step forward and take on your punishment, but he's happy to. He's freely doing it. The whole trinity is involved in this, and the whole trinity is consenting. And it's just like, I'm just picturing like everyone sitting there waiting on you. <laughs> They're waiting on you. You're not waiting on God to provide the sacrifice. He's already provided it and he's waiting on you to accept it. That's all that's left. Your justification is complete. There is nothing, nothing that you can do that would add to or subtract from what Christ has done on the cross. Jesus's final words on the cross were, it is finished. This is John 19.30. And what this means is that the work of paying off your debt is done. God has, or Christ has satisfied God's justice. A commentary on this verse said, These sins can never be punished again, since that would violate God's justice. So everything you have ever done, and everything that you will ever do, has been completely taken care of. 
There's no ounce of punishment that you have to bear. There's no, God is not holding a grudge against you. He is not disappointed in you. Every single thing, every single thing you've ever done is completely taken care of. Got another quote from Horatius. This is what he said. The voice from the tree, the voice from the cross, did not summon them to do, but to be satisfied with what was done. And I did not get this. I grew up in a Christian home where I heard the gospel pretty much every week. I heard it from my parents, I heard it from my church, and I spent most of my life up until college thinking that the voice from this tree summoned me to try harder and prove that I was worthy of rescuing. And that is because I did not understand the heart of God. I didn't understand that he wanted to pay my debt. He paid all of it because he wanted to, and he's waiting for me to accept it and be satisfied. So what does this mean for you? What does, the, what does it mean for you that God is satisfied? It means there's nothing left for you to pay. There's no punishment to make up for. There's no sin left. Everything you've ever done is completely covered by the blood of Jesus. The only thing that's left for you to do is to consent, to receive it by faith. I think this is my last quote from Horatius, so let's bask in it while he's still with us. This is what he says. Faith is the acknowledgement of the entire absence of all goodness in us and the recognition of the cross as the substitute for all the want on our part. Faith saves because it owns the complete salvation of another, and not because it contributes anything to that salvation. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that it is Christ who saves you? <laughs> it's not the quality of your faith. It's not the strength of your faith. It's not the, it's not the bravery and the courage and the sacrifice and the unwavering stamina of your faith that saves you. It is Christ who saves you. So that's, that's my first point. God is satisfied, and the only thing left for you to do is accept it. But then my second point is that God isn't just satisfied. He's actually generous. So God is not just a satisfied judge who's let you go. He has the power not just to forgive you, but actually to make you into a completely new person who's worthy to be his son or daughter. This verse comes from Romans 4, and it says, It will be counted to us as righteousness, who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, so there's what we just talked about, and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus delivered himself up to the cross to pay for your trespasses, and then was raised in order to make you into a completely new person who is found righteous before God. So God hasn't just forgiven you of all your sins. He's actually um, given you Christ's righteousness. And a couple years ago, someone was giving a talk, and they used this example that I think is really helpful. Imagine that your life is like a whiteboard. So the whiteboard represents you. And on it are written all of the things you've ever done, said, thought, sins you've committed, good things you should have done and you didn't. They're all written on the whiteboard. So picture this whiteboard that's just filled with the things that you feel the most shame over. Justification is that God erases that whiteboard. So now it's completely clear. But justification is also that God takes a permanent marker and writes perfect on the whiteboard and nothing else ever gets written on that board. So God doesn't just say, I'm, I'm satisfied, you're good to go, I've brought you back up to zero. God is so generous in that he actually transforms you. He puts his spirit in you and calls you his own. And this has been called the glorious reversal. Christ takes all my sin and receives all my punishment, and I take his righteousness and receive all the benefits of it. So if we go back to the courtroom scene, picture the judge coming out from behind the bench after he's declared you not guilty, and then takes you by the hand and says, you're never gonna make it out there alone. Come be part of my family. I'm gonna make you my son or daughter. 
And, and that's the image of justification. It's not just that you've been declared not guilty. It's that the judge has left the bench and come and grabbed you and said, I really like you. <laughs> come be my son. Come be my daughter. So think about this for just a minute. God doesn't owe you anything. Anything. Like Zach talked about last week. God has no needs. He doesn't need you. He does not need you on this project. He does not need you as a room leader. He does not need you as a team leader. He does not need me as a project director. Certainly doesn't need Zach as a project director. <laughs> that was not on script. Sorry about that. <laughs> Zach is great. <laughs> Um, God does not owe you your salvation. He certainly does not owe you your adoption. So how can we explain this? How can we, why? Why did he come from behind the bench? It's because he loves you. That's why he came. That's why he left heaven. That's why he came and put on flesh. That's why he got on the cross. That's why he went to the grave. And that's why he rose again. He loves you more than you can imagine. We long to be fully known and fully loved. Tim Keller argues he thinks that's the deepest desire in everyone's heart. Yet often we compromise because in this life, what we usually experience is that in order to be fully loved, it means we can't be fully known. And so in order to be accepted, there's things about yourself that you're just never gonna share because you want that love. Or you are fully known and you're not loved because of it. But what is offered to us in Christ is that the deepest, most vulnerable longing of our soul is satisfied. That we are fully known. That every thought, every deed is fully known by God. And yet, you are fully loved. God knew exactly what he was getting himself into when he chose you. He knew what you would do. <laughs> he knew the ways you would continue to sin. And he still went to the cross for you. He loved you enough to die for you. He loved you enough to bring you into his family. And I've been thinking actually a lot about the concept of adoption because I have three adopted siblings. They're all, I have three brothers and three sisters. And all my sisters are adopted. And I just want to talk about it because I think it's sometimes like concepts like justification and sanctification, they feel so theological. <laughs> oh, so these are, these are the very first photos we ever got of my sisters. Sadie is on the left, Lizzie's on the right. They're, they're from Ethiopia, and their Ethiopian names were Fikra and Lem Lem. <laughs> I just love the name Lem Lem. So these are the very first pictures that we ever got of them. And we got these pictures after we had decided that we were going to adopt them. And so my parents felt really called by the Lord to adopt from Ethiopia. And we knew nothing about these girls. <laughs> we did not know their history. We, we knew nothing about them. We knew their ages and their names. That's it. That's all we knew. And we had to decide, were we going to adopt them? We'd been referred to them, and we decided we were going to adopt them. And we said yes. And it actually was really cool how the timing worked out. This was when I was in high school. So get ready. You're about to see a really embarrassing photo of me <laughs> in high school. Uh, oh, oh, this is another photo. Um, one thing I want to point out, so this is them in their orphanage. And this photo actually really haunted my family. And it's probably not a photo that we would have been able to share. Um, because Lizzie, the two-year-old, you can just tell that she knows that something's not right. And Sadie has no idea what's going on. <laughs> She's just bald and asleep. But, um, <laughs> Every single photo we got that had Lizzie in it, um, she was never smiling. She was rarely looking at the camera, and this was her face in almost every single photo. So these girls are orphans. They have been, for whatever reason, abandoned by their biological parents, and they're alone um, until God called my family to adopt them. And, um, <laughs> I actually was going to Ethiopia on a mission trip, and the timing worked out that the day that the Ethiopian courts legally declared that these girls are now part of the Button family was the same day that I was in Ethiopia with a free day. So I actually got to go to their orphanage and hold them 
on the day that they were legally declared buttons. And I'm holding Sadie on the left photo. Lizzie was absolutely terrified of me and refused to even come near me. So she's sitting in her nanny's lap in that photo. And the crazy thing is that the moment that I held Sadie in my arms, I knew she was my sister. There wasn't a moment that I didn't feel love for her. There wasn't a moment that uh, I was waiting and watching to see if she was gonna do something to earn my love. The moment I held her, even before I held her, she had already been declared as being my sister. And I uh, just wanna show you a picture of us today. <laughs> they're so cute. And um, they're actually really cool. I'm gonna talk about them in my femininity talk next week, because Sadie is like the biggest tomboy in the whole world. Everyone thinks she's a boy. And Lizzie is just like, little, um, so I took this photo right before I left for the project. Um, but the reason why I wanted to talk about my sisters is because the Bible uses language of adoption. And I think it's so helpful when we think about earthly adoptions because these girls are the buttons. <laughs> the moments that the court declared, you are now buttons, they became buttons. And when they were brought home, they didn't know where stuff was. <laughs> they still look different from my parents and me. When they first came, they didn't know how to speak English. They did stuff that was like, wasn't what we were used to. It wasn't how our family normally did stuff. And so they had to learn what it meant to live like a button. And we're gonna talk about that later this summer. But the fact that they didn't exactly know what they were doing did not make them any less of a button because what made them buttons was the court declaring that they were buttons. And what made the court declare they were buttons was my parents' love. So does that make sense, how that connects back to God? What makes you a child of God is that God has declared that you are his child. And what has made you a child of God is that God loves you. It's ridiculous for me <laughs> to think about Lizzie and Sadie ever thinking that they did something to like earn their adoption. Because like we didn't even have their photos. <laughs> And, and in the same way, it's, it would be ridiculous for anyone in this room to think that you did anything, anything, to earn God's adopting you. He, he freely put his love on you. So what does that mean? What does it mean for you if you've been adopted? It means that you are a beloved son of God. You are a beloved daughter of God. You are not just a forgiven sinner. You are a child of God. He did not just bring you back up to zero. He lifted you up into his very arms and called you his own. And then my last point is that, so the first one is that God is satisfied. The second one is that God is generous. And the third point is that God is happy with you. He is glad that he saved you. <laughs> and you're not that great. You are a sinner. You are not living your best life right now. But he, you are his. <laughs> it's just like, my sisters are my sisters, and I love them. And they do things that get on my nerves, and I do things that get on their nerves, but that doesn't change the fact that they are my sisters, they are my family, and I love them. And that's how God feels about you. God doesn't regret that he saved you. He, he knew exactly what he was getting himself into, and he chose to save you anyway. He doesn't hold anything against you. He bears no grudge. He remembers no wrong, because it's finished. All of your sin, it's taken care of. It's not even associated with you anymore. It's been wiped off the whiteboard, and there is now a new title on that whiteboard, because you're clothed in Christ's righteousness. So the, I started out with that quote about C.S. Lewis, where he talked about, the most important thing is what God thinks of you. And I want to read you the rest of that quote because it's kind of incredible. This is what he says. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written in the Bible that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible, and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us, who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient 
in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in the son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. God did not owe this to you. He freely and willingly and joyfully chose this. The Trinity has brought you in. The Trinity that has existed from all of eternity in a perfect relationship has chosen to bring you in because you are now a real ingredient in the divine happiness. Like Zach talked about last week, God has no needs, which means that he needs nothing from you when he saves you and justifies you and adopts you. He loves you because he loves you. It is finished. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. This is how you know the face of God towards you. He is well pleased with you. What made me really sad in the sermon on Sunday at the chapel was that the pastor concluded his story about Billy Graham really without concluding it. And I... What I wanted to say, what what I think a lot of us in the room wanted to stand up and say, is that Billy Graham can know with absolute certainty that he will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because it never depended on his performance in the first place, ever. If it had ever for a second depended on Billy Graham, then he would never in a million years hope to hear those words. But from the moment of his salvation, It did not depend on him. And so if anyone in this room, if you're thinking, I want to accept this, but there is something about me, there is something in me that still causes me to doubt, then you haven't understand a word I've said because it's not about you. It is not about what you've done. It's not about what you can do, what you can't do. It's it's not about you and it's never gonna be about you because it's only about Christ and his righteousness that has been given to you. And so Billy Graham, has for sure heard, the, if he's in Christ, has heard these words. And you, if you are in Christ today with absolute certainty, I can tell you that you will hear the words, well job, well done, good and faithful servant. So if God were to walk in the room right now, if those doors were to open and Jesus were to come in and he were to stand face to face with you, his face would be happy. He would love you. He would like you. He would like what he sees. He would be excited to see you. So I want to end with something that I have not done before. And I, it's really important to me that you would feel what it feels like to have a happy, satisfied, generous father. Because we can know so much but I think so often there's a disconnect into what it actually feels. And so I have rewritten the story of the prodigal son so that it's a little bit more of a story. Um, and, and this painting is actually, it's not appearing super well on the projector, but it's a famous painting done by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And there's an incredible book written by Henry Nowen that's a reflection on this painting. I really encourage you to read it if you feel like this is something that's evoking some emotion. But I would invite you to close your notebooks, um, put away your pen. If your phone is out, put it away. And I'll have some questions at the end, so keep your notebooks semi-handy. But for this time, I want you to just listen to the story. And and imagine, put your shoe, put yourself in the shoes of the prodigal son returning home. That's what I attempted to do in this story. So put yourself in the shoes of the prodigal son. As he made his way up the old familiar hill, his mind whirled with fear, questions, and anxieties. What would his father do when he saw him again? Yell? Tell him to get out? 
or worse, say nothing at all, not even look at him. But no, he would demand an audience with his father. And then he would recite his speech, persuading his father to let him back in. He had resolved that night in the pigsty to turn things around, to be the son his father deserved. He had blown it. He knew that. There was no going back. But he would prove to his father that he was different. He would undo the wrong he'd done. So he rehearsed what he would say to his father, something that would prove he was different. He wouldn't make the same mistakes ever again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That was the key. He had given up his chances of ever being his father's son. He'd lost that the day he left. But to be a servant, to spend the rest of his life making up for what he'd done, to slowly but surely pay his father back, that he felt sure he could do. If only he tried hard enough, he would pay back his debt. But as each step brought him closer and closer to his old home, he began to falter. The shame and guilt over what he'd done refused to be pressed down any longer. How could his father ever forgive him for what he'd said, what he'd done? It had been three years, and his parting words to his father still rang in his ears. I don't need you. My life would be so much better if you were gone. Give me what's mine and get out of my way. He had taken his inheritance, so carefully earned by his father, and left, never once looking back. At first, it had been exciting. The rush of wealth had felt even better than he'd hoped. The friends, the parties, the wine, the women, all had made him feel like a king. But then the money began to run out, and the friends disappeared. He stopped being invited to the parties. The women left him feeling empty and used. And then there was the gamble he lost, the one where he promised to pay a thousand times more than he had. And his debtor had demanded payment. He knew he couldn't pay, he was desperate, he had nothing. So he got rid of the man and fled. Fled farther than he'd ever gone. He'd shown up at the gates of a farmer and begged for a job. The farmer took one look at him, if you could even call it a look, and sent him to the pigsties with a grunt. It's the only job you're worth for. He'd spent weeks feeding those giant beasts, growing weaker and weaker as they grew fatter and fatter. He'd gotten so desperate that he actually began to eat the pig's food until one day the farmer caught a glimpse of it and became so angry that he threw him out. He had nowhere to go, hated by everyone everywhere he went. Everyone looked at him with contempt and disgust. The guilt of what he'd done was inescapable. His shame clung to him closer than his skin. He hated himself. He'd tried on one occasion to even take his own life. Death seemed better than to live one more day in his skin. But at the end, he couldn't go through with it. And that made him hate himself even more. He came up over the crest of the final hill and saw from a distance his old home. There it sat, unchanging and as beautiful as he had remembered it. And something broke inside of him. He had been a fool to think he could ever be accepted here. He had done too much, seen too much. The stench of the pigs clung to his skin, but even more the blackness of what he'd done clung to his very soul. His carefully rehearsed speech would never be enough to restore him to his father. It was laughable to think he'd, his father would ever want him back. Who would ever want him? He allowed himself one final longing glimpse at his home, pure and unattainable, before turning his back and going the way he'd come. But just then, as he turned, he noticed a commotion. Just outside the house, a figure appeared. He heard shouts, cries, and then movement. The figure burst from the gates and came flying down the road, up the hill, towards him. His fear burst out and paralyzed him. He couldn't move. He stood there, frozen, at the top of the hill, watching as the figure got closer and closer. With about a hundred yards between them, the figure slowly materialized, and to his absolute horror, he realized it was his father. His fear was now joined by panic. Gone was his vision of sneaking in the back and cleaning up before approaching his father. 
He had no time to bathe or shower or even wash his feet. He was still clothed in the rags thrown at him by the farmer. Still reeked of the pig feces. His arms were bruised and covered in sores. His feet were swollen and bloodied by the long journey. His hopes for at least the dignity of being clean when talking to his father eroded. He began to steal himself for what he was sure was to come. His father's utterly passionate and absolutely deserved rage. But as his father got closer, the son saw his face. And there, he saw the very last thing he'd ever expected to see. There was no rage, no disappointment, no disgust. It was, could it be, joy. Yes, joy. He could now hear the incredulous laughter pouring out of his father's mouth and could see the tears streaming from his eyes. Before he even had a second to think, his father was there in front of him, smiling, and then around him, weeping. My son, he cried. The filth and sweat and blood from the son's garments had soiled the father's tunic, but he didn't notice. He only held the son closer as he said over and over, my son, my son. Servants from the house had followed their master and now surrounded the scene, gaping at their master on the ground. The relief the son had felt was quickly replaced by the urgency of his task. His father needed to know he was sorry, that he'd come to fix things, that he intended to pay him back. He broke out of his father's embrace and began his rehearsed lines. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to become your son, to be called your son. But before he could finish, before he could get to the part about his plan to pay him back, his father waved off his words as if he hadn't even heard them. Bring quickly the very best robe, he cried to the servants, lifting both himself and his son off the ground. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. He looked at the son's hands and feet proudly. It was like he didn't even see the sores and the dirt and the blood. He continued, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. He paused momentarily to gaze at his son with eyes brimming full of tears with compassion and love. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and was found. He drew his son to him and didn't let him go until they had come into the house together, and he had dragged him to each member of the household, saying, My son has returned. There's no time to explain or clarify, or even to serve, only to bask in his father's overwhelming delight. That night, his father threw a banquet that was more filled with joy and love and laughter than anything the son had ever experienced. But there was one who did not share that joy. There was another brother. One who had never wandered, never strayed, never left. He kept his head down, did everything his father asked him. The three years that the younger brother was out, destroying the family name and exploiting their inheritance, the elder brother had been faithfully at work, plowing the fields, harvesting the grain, never asking for anything more than what he earned. He'd watched his father's heartbreak every day that the son did not return. And he resolved, in his heart of hearts, to never disappoint his father, to never do anything that would ca cause the kind of sorrow or require the kind of forgiveness that his younger brother had. He would show his father that he was a son worthy of his inheritance. So when the younger son returned and was not only welcomed but celebrated, the elder brother was livid. How dare his brother think he could show his face down here? Didn't he know that his father's house was for those who obeyed, who honored the father? But how could his father possibly dream of accepting this criminal of a son? There were reports of what he'd done, and so to welcome him back in here would damage the name of their family beyond all question. What was his father thinking? So he refused to join in the celebration. I will not celebrate one in whom there's nothing worth celebrating. He snarled to a servant who invited him in. Tell that to my father, he added, as the servant hurried away. A few minutes later, there was a gentle tap on his door and the father entered. My son, he said, your brother has returned. He's alive. Won't you jo join us in the celebration? 
This is too much for the son, the elder brother. Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, when he returned, you killed the fattened calf. The father's eyes filled with tears, and he shook his head sorrowfully. My son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Do you not understand the nature of my love? That it is grace? It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. But the elder brother refused. He deserved that celebration, not his worthless brother. He earned his father's love, not this traitor. So he refused to join the celebration, comforting himself that his obedience meant he'd never need his father's grace. Meanwhile, the father returned to the celebration where his younger son sat with a grave and resolved face. Father, he said, I must tell you all that I have done. And so he did. With many tears and sighs, the son recounted every word, deed, and thought of evil from the past three years. When he finished, he looked up at his father's face to see it still filled with love and compassion. Father, he said, I don't understand. How could you ever let me back after all that I've done? The father's face softened and he looked off into the dark sky. My sons, he said quietly, do they know my love for them? My love for them that pulses and rolls and swells like the sea that cannot be restrained or abated. My love that cannot be stopped or diminished or ever, ever lost. Do you think that for one second my love for you ever ceased? No. My love for you is grace, and it has taken you years, but you are now learning the truth that my grace requires nothing from you. God's grace requires nothing from him. All that he has for you can be yours now. His grace requires nothing of you because it required everything of Jesus. And he gladly paid it so that you might be welcomed back into the family. So will you come? Will you come to the celebration? Will you come home? Will you put away your shame Will you put away your guilt, your rehearsed apology, your attempts to pay God back and try to earn his favor? Will you put away your running record of your obedience to God? Will you put it all away and will you come home?